Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's podcast, Digging into DEI and Pharmacy Practice, Improving Care for Sexual and Gender Minorities. These episodes explore the issues, experiences, and perspectives of underrepresented communities in ASHP's membership, including BIPOC and LGBTQA members. My name is Melanie Smith, and I am the ASHP Director of the Section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners, as well as the Pharmacy Student Forum. I will be serving as your host. In this episode, I will be chatting with Dr. Alex Mills from the University of Mississippi, Dr. Kyle Moline from the University of Puerto Rico Medical Sciences Campus, and Dr. Rania Garcia with the VA in Loma Linda, California. Our conversation will focus on improving care and professional relationships with sexual and gender minorities, specifically those who identify as a part of the LGBTQ community, as well as what steps pharmacists can take to make a positive impact. So thank you everybody for joining me today. So just to get us started, I'll just pose the first question to Kyle. Caring for sexual and gender gender minorities is often still a small component of many pharmacists' formal education and training. So can you start off by just giving us briefly a summary of what we mean by the term sexual and gender minorities? Yeah, so sexual and gender minorities is this umbrella term that really encompasses populations included in the acronym LGBT, LGBTQI, and those whose sexual orientation or gender identity might vary in one way or another, but might not be specifically included in part of this acronym as well. So sexual minority refers to an individual or group whose sexual identity, orientation, practices differ from the majority of surrounding society. Gender minority refers to an individual or group whose gender identity differs from the sex originally assigned to them at birth whose gender expression varies significantly from what is traditionally associated with or typical for that group, or who vary from or reject traditional cultural conceptualizations of gender in terms of male-to-female dichotomy. So generally speaking, sexual and gender minority is a broader term. It can include those who may not self-identify as LGBTQI or those who have specific medical condition affecting reproductive development. So individuals who might not normally be included in this acronym or might not identify with some of those terms we talked about in this acronym, like questioning, two-spirit, asexual, um, gender variant, um, individuals who might have a difference or disorder of sex development, maybe someone who identifies as intersex. These are all things that might be included um, under sexual and gender minority, but are not necessarily included in an acronym that we might use. In the module, we talk a bit about terminology, acronyms, and language. An individual person may use different language that they may most identify with, but I think one important point to highlight is that terminology and language is always evolving, and it can have different connotations in different contexts. So as practicing healthcare providers, it's really important for us to focus on using terminology that's culturally appropriate for our context and creates a safe and accessible environment for patients. Whenever you're in doubt, the best practice is always to ask an individual which terminology and identity language they prefer. Absolutely. I completely agree. So moving on to our next question, and you kind of highlighted this, but now that we've clarified some of that terminology, 
Can you tell us a little bit about why both cultural and clinical competency with regards to sexual and gender minorities is so important? So I think as a starting point, it's important to mention that most sexual and gender minority populations experience disparities in health outcomes, both physical and mental, compared to their heterosexual and gender peers. With regards to mental health disparities in particular, I think many people, including healthcare professionals, will view these disparities as consequences of pursuing a particular life trajectory rather than resulting directly from kind of these corrosive and persistent impacts of stigma. There really is a lot of evidence documenting the destructive impact of socially mediated stigma and systemic discrimination on health outcomes for a number of minorities, and this includes sexual and gender minorities. And as healthcare providers, we're certainly not immune from these societal forces like stigma. And if we care about these health disparities as healthcare providers, and I really believe that most practicing pharmacists do care about these health disparities, I think it's really important we take a closer look at how our own cultural and clinical competency as a profession work to either counteract or perpetuate these disparities. Yeah, I think kind of going off a little bit more of what, what Kyle's talking about, you know, I think cultural and clinical competency when caring for sexual and gender minorities is incredibly important. I do think it really starts with being culturally competent above all else. So I'm sure many of us have interacted or observed a clinician that absolutely floors you with their clinical knowledge, right? I mean, I remember working with one clinician and hearing them discuss some intricacies related to that condition and saying, wow, this person is a savant, right? However, like on the flip side, that clinical knowledge only is going to get you so far when you're caring for another person on the other side of that exam room or hospital room door. This really is magnified when you're serving sexual and gender minorities, as many of them have experienced some form of discrimination or harassment due to how they identify. Now, Kyle also brings up in the diversity, equity, inclusion certificate program he mentioned earlier, um, but I think it's worth highlighting again today that about one third of transgender individuals who were specifically surveyed back in 2015 reported having some sort of negative experience related to being transgender, which could include having to teach the provider about transgender people and transgender care. Now, I don't think this is an intentionally occurring, however. Many professionals want to provide patient-centered care, yet it comes down to simply not being aware of the unique needs and having unintentional oversight that leads to not asking the right questions, and additionally, some negative outcomes. I think, for example, when we think about a patient that maybe identifies as a transgender male, so assigned female at birth, but they identify with a male gender, that if they presented to a clinic outwardly expressing as a male and sexual health is perhaps discussed with someone who's maybe not as culturally competent or aware of the need for more non-presumptive questions regarding their sexual activity, they may assume the person engages in sexual activity with females Yet in reality, they may be attracted to and engage in intercourse with those assigned male at birth. So this is potentially missing an opportunity to discuss and initiate HIV prep, for example. So I share this as just one of many examples of how understanding cultural context for sexual and gender minorities allows us as clinicians to provide clinically competent and patient-centered care. Right, that was a great example, Alex, and I see that a lot in our practice. Um, I wanted to comment too. So when we hear these words, cultural and clinical competency, they're thrown around a lot whenever we talk about the LGBTQ population. 
And it's really interesting to me that we don't stop and consider cultural or clinical competency for other populations because it's a given, it's understood, it's practiced without a thought. I think this is a really important premise that we've come to realize that there are differences in how clinicians should approach LGBTQ people and their healthcare. First, I feel that cultural and clinical competency, especially when it comes to LGBTQ folks, and I spell folks as F-O-L-X, has a lot to do with being in community to a degree with the folks you are serving, especially when it's a community that has long been pathologized. For example, a transgender man will be more likely to choose a surgeon for top surgery who's engaged with the trans community in social ways, like supporting local trans artists, writers, agencies who tend to LGBT people over the surgeon that has comparable and maybe even better results, whose experience with trans folks outside of the practice was little to none. This surgeon will more likely use language that exhibits cultural competency, interacting with trans folks, therefore making it easier for patients to talk to him about what they needed in surgery and overall more satisfied with the care that was provided. It's easy for us as clinicians to just focus on the chief complaint or the issue at hand and then ask the questions to address these concerns. However, to do it in a way that is culturally sensitive to impact the ways we interact with marginalized communities should not be thought of as going the extra mile. Rather, it's appropriate and fair care. If you only interact with transgender people as patients and not as people in your everyday life, it makes an impact even implicitly on how you see them. They are whole people who have a culture all their own, especially a culture that faces so much adversity as being non-normative. Second, and somewhat related, cultural competent care considers impact as well as intent. For gender diverse folks, someone asking, how long have you identified as a man has a completely different impact than, tell me a little bit about your gender journey, journey and discernment. When did it start? Culturally competent care takes into account that compartmentalized norm of man, woman, hetero, homosexual, trans, cisgender, it still prescribes this label that may not give you the whole picture for the patient's goals, which then impacts clinical competency and how you address their medical needs. For example, when considering gender affirming therapy, ask is the goal to masculinize to pass as male or is the goal to occupy a more gray gender queer space? And for surgeries, how does the patient identify in regards to their gender? Does the patient want a metoidioplasty, phalloplasty due to gender dysphoria, but still enjoys penetration, so they do not want a vaginectomy, et cetera? Health professionals that recognize where they stand on the spectrum of cultural competencies is especially important of care, of the care of sex and gender minorities, because it makes all the difference in the capacity to provide compassionate, comprehensive and clinically competent care. Essentially, without cultural competency, you compromise clinical competency. That's really great. And I think you bring up a really good point about how we are so used to having cultural competency in a variety of other patient populations. So it shouldn't really be different with our LGBTQ friends. So what are some ways that we can create affirming environment for patients that identify as LGBTQ? Yeah, well, I think there's several different ways that we can go about this. So if we talk about the physical environment, such as a clinic, 
think about maybe incorporating symbols like like the rainbow or a pink triangle for an example or different messages and different patient references so things can be lgbtq specific health brochures throughout the waiting area and patient care areas while these can seem like small more passive ways to make patients feel welcome and safe, it can speak volumes to those who may still be rather private in their phase of disclosure regarding their sexual orientation or gender identity. Another aspect that can go a long way for persons of trans experience is asking and disclosing pronouns. So this can be done via intake forms, uh, various signage or badges that are listing the medical staff's pronouns, and then asking for this information during a patient encounter. So personally, in, in my clinic, many of my staff within our clinic have either pins or other accessories that display that person's pronouns. It ends up being a, quite a euphoric conversation piece for those who are transgender or gender nonconforming. Now, also take a look at your system's documentation platform. Are there ways for an end user to document gender versus legal sex? What about entering a preferred name and pronouns? Since patients have the right to access their medical record, this is, I think, rather important to address so that patients who identify as LGBTQ and are gender nonconforming don't have a dysphoric experience seeing them being misgendered within their chart. If your system has the ability to make encounter templates or smart phrases, um, this could be an easy step to prompt users to ask and document gender-affirming information before making a mistake. And then most importantly, I think the training of everyone who may interact with someone who identifies as part of the LGBTQ community is critical in creating that affirming environment and retaining sexual and gender minorities in care. This would include everyone from the front desk or registration staff to our providers. So for example, ensuring like the front desk staff are aware of the use of affirming pronouns or preferred names listed in a patient's chart or using non-assumptive language when asking a question about gender-specific medical needs and even how information about patient information is documented within the medical chart. I'd argue that this should be focused on the support staff first, as we have seen we survey LGBTQ youth that they rank their nursing, their support staff, their level of cultural competency as the most important factor when them rating the facility or clinic that they want to return and engage in care. Essentially, there's a lot of ways that you can make your system or clinic an affirming environment. So I suggest forming a team, address these from as many angles as possible. It may even be worth approaching LGBTQ persons who are publicly open about their sexual orientation and gender identity to serve almost as a advisor of sorts when scanning that environment. It can definitely take a village, um, but pharmacists can certainly be the first step in making these changes. And I just want to piggyback on that and just kind of highlight one thing that Alex mentioned, which is whether you're in a community pharmacy setting or a clinic setting or, or you know any healthcare setting, Really emphasizing that the the training of support staff, I think, is is fundamental because for a lot of patients, their interaction with their healthcare provider, their their primary healthcare provider, in whatever context you're talking about, is usually the most private interaction they're going to have, and their interaction with a receptionist, a secretary, um, administrator, even with a nurse um, in a waiting room, or is usually the most public interaction they're going to have. Um, and so that cultural confidence is important for everybody. Um, but I think the repercussions sometimes of that cultural confidence not being there um, can be even bigger when it happens in a more public forum. 100%. And I completely, I completely agree with all of that because 
support staff is who you interact with when you first get to your visit. So you want to make sure that everybody's trained and everybody can be provide the most comfortable situation for the patient. So switching gears just a little bit, for many of our listeners, this is rather new territory, and they may not have had this type of education or training in school, in residency, in fellowship, whatever. So that may lead to some mistakes when interacting with patients or any sexual or gender minority. We've kind of highlighted that just a little bit here. So what kind of advice would you like to provide when handling any sort of mistakes that may happen in the clinical setting? Yeah, well, when anyone is starting out in newly serving sexual and gender minorities, mistakes are going to happen in a variety of different ways. So that could be using the wrong pronouns, calling a person by their non-preferred name, or making assumptions about a person's partner's gender. And that's okay. I think the key here is owning up to that mistake and being vulnerable with your patients. It's perfectly fine to even preface the conversation with a patient that, hey, I'm still new to this type of space and trying to get to know you and making sure I'm using the right terminology and that you welcome that patient to correct you if you potentially make a mistake. I mean, remember, to err is human. Yeah, I, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes uh, over the course of my my career already. And I agree completely. You know, we all make mistakes. And when you do, owning it directly and respectfully is important. But I just want to add to that. Own it, address it, and then move on. So for very well-meaning people, it can be tempting to go on and on about how bad you feel, that you messed up, or how how hard it is for you to get it right, and that you're really trying, um, but it's just difficult. But you're trying really hard, and it's really important, and you care a lot please don't do this. By going on and on about how you are so sorry or about how you are trying hard, but it's just difficult, it can have this unintended effect of making the person who you've misspoken to feel awkward or responsible for comforting you or responsible for your comfort, which is absolutely not their job. So you remember, remember the point of an apology is to make the patient feel better. It's not to make you feel better. So I think it's useful to kind of keep that perspective. Totally agree with that. Um, I have to say, I still make mistakes. I've been doing this for over 10 years and it's something that it just takes a while to get, you know, practice and get used to. But when it comes to pronouns, just as Kyle had said, corrections should be just very brief, brief as possible. And I know it's hard to find that balance between owning a mistake and just breezing past it. But when we keep in mind that the apology is for the other person, just as what Kyle had said, and not to relieve us of our guilt in making the mistake, I think it becomes easier to figure out what is the appropriate response. So when people apologize profusely for getting someone's pronouns wrong, it often puts the burden on the other person in the position of having to say, oh, it's okay. And then they have to put that error aside and make the obviously distressed person that made the mistake feel better. When people say things like, oh, it's just really hard to remember, then it has the potential to make someone feel like a burden because others struggle with their pronouns. So I just recommend you apologize briefly, intentionally correct your mistake and move on. For example, You have somebody that is a transgender female and you say when he and you go, I apologize when she and just keep going. That's it. That's all you need. Something very simple regarding mistakes in providing trans competent health care. It's best to just own the lack of knowledge. So if you don't know how to address someone, just ask. If you don't know about their trans specific health care needs, you just ask. If you're on a new and on a learning curve, just ask. 
Naming the lack of knowledge and setting an intention to always be learning is valuable and worth it. Just be truthful, be honest, and open to feedback from your patients. They really can teach us a lot. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that will better the relationship that you have down the line. If you just say, you know, I'm still learning, I can learn from you just as much as you can, you know, learn from me. So one other thing that we also talk about a little bit in the certificate program that I also think is is kind of relevant here is uh, when we talk about asking the importance of asking and being upfront, I agree hundred percent. But I think it's important also to remember to keep that kind of in the context of like what's appropriate to ask and what not. So asking about pronouns is always appropriate. Um, But when you start at, it's important to, to kind of keep in perspective the things that you're asking, making sure the things you're asking are relevant to the care of that patient. Because another thing that transgender, in particular transgender patients, but but all sexual gender minorities, I think experience it sometimes in their interactions with the healthcare system are uh, questions that aren't necessarily directly relevant to their care. But sometimes I think as healthcare providers, if we get comfortable enough with a patient, sometimes there can be this tendency to kind of start over asking questions that aren't directly relevant um, and can, again, put a patient in an uncomfortable situation. So, yeah, I just wanted to, and I, Rania, I'm sure maybe you have, I don't know, I'm putting you on the spot, but I don't know if you have other thoughts about that specifically, but I know it's this kind of balance that, that we walk um, sometimes of making sure we're at when we're not, you know, we're talking about cultural competence competency, you know, if we're not familiar with pronouns or what our language to make a patient comfortable, we should always ask. And when it comes to kind of clinical information, we need to ask information that's directly relevant, but not not kind of over asking information that isn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it is all have to do with relevance to the actual case, actual um, situation that you're in, being very cognizant of what you are asking and not just asking out of curiosity, I think is really important. So taking um, a little bit closer look at the patients um, themselves, what are the top three most common concerns for someone who is about to start gender-affirming hormone therapy? So in my experience, the top three most common concerns or questions we get asked are whether or not gender-affirming treatment will provide enough hormone to suppress levels to create physical changes. Second, how soon can they expect to see changes? And third, how will family friends and coworkers react. So for the first concern is, well, will gender-affirming hormone therapy provide enough hormone levels to suppress or create physical changes? The answer to this is that it depends. While most individuals will feminize or masculinize on the appropriate hormone regimen, time of exposure to their natal hormone plays a role in their success for transition. This is more of a factor for transgender women than it is for transgender men, however. Uh, So suppose you have a transgender woman who's never been on gender-affirming hormones, presents at age 60 with a goal to fully transition without any surgical intervention. She'll have a more difficult time than a transgender woman in her 20s. The added 40 years of exposure to testosterone has set into motion these physical changes that are difficult to reverse or soften with feminizing therapy. Male pattern hair loss, facial hair, chest hair, certain facial features, voice, tone, and depth are all a result of testosterone exposure, and some changes are irreversible, like male pattern hair loss and deepening of the voice. In transgender men, some may feel that they're a little bit more lucky in this sense. A lifetime of exposure to estrogen is not as rigid with regards to reversibility when testosterone is introduced. 
While we aim to reach target levels of estrogen and to suppress testosterone in a transgender female, it's important to keep in mind that higher hormone levels don't always mean a faster or better transition. This is especially true for transgender men on testosterone. Remember that testosterone is converted to estrogen, so more hormone does not equal better outcomes in this scenario. Gender-affirming hormone therapy will provide the patient with enough hormone level to elicit physical change. The extent of the change depends on a number of factors and exposure to natal hormone being one of the most predictive. This ties into the second question or concern, which is how fast will these changes occur? Generally speaking, again, this depends on age, genetics, number of years of exposure to natal hormone, gender-affirming hormone levels, and medication compliance. Most patients will begin to experience changes in about three months, give or take. However, maximum effects can take up to five years and even more. Changes don't happen as fast as most trans people would like, and this sometimes leads to frustration with their provider, loss of confidence in their treatment regimen, and then they may resort to going online, gaining misinformation from forums, purchasing hormones illegitimately, self-titrating, and then self-medicating. The key takeaway here is to have a conversation with your patient about what changes they can expect to see from their hormone therapy and to openly discuss the time frame to these changes so that the patient is fully informed. And the third most common concern is how to work through reactions of family, friends, and coworkers. Typically, from my experience, patients that have disclosed that they are transgender to their family, friends, and coworkers and feel they have support can be in for a surprise once they actually begin the transition and start to see changes. Their families may have been supportive at one point, but may not have understood the concept fully or may not be as ready to accept the person that they knew is no longer. So in many ways, it's a grieving process. And then there are others who have not come out to their family, friends, or coworkers and may dress in their self-identified gender in hiding. I had this patient, for example, he would wear feminine undergarments, bra, panties, but would wear his male clothing on top. So sometimes they just don't come out in a certain way and they have to work through that. Others have come out at home, but not at work due to concerns of how they'll be received or because they're concerned about their safety. To say the least, it's all very, very complex. And as providers, it's important to ask the question if they've shared their plan to transition with others to include family, friends, and coworkers. Ask if they have a support system in place and then follow up by asking how you can support them in their transition. Offer a referral to mental health provider as they are best equipped to address these concerns and help the individual along their journey. So taking it a step further, because you've covered a lot when it comes to gender-affirming hormone therapy, is um, gender-affirming therapy something that is objectively or subjectively driven? So are we treating the numbers or are we treating the outcome? So it's really a marriage of the two. The initial aim is to reach therapeutic hormone levels. And this includes testosterone suppression for a transgender woman as well as reaching therapeutic levels of estrogen in a transgender female and testosterone in a transgender male. However, um, I'd like to circle back to the 60-year-old and the 20-year-old transgender women that I mentioned in the previous question. So suppose you're treating this 60-year-old transgender female. She has an estradiol level of 55. As a reminder, the target level is not to exceed 200 for estrogen. And her testosterone is adequately suppressed. 
She's taken steps to feminize, dressing in female clothes, has had electrolysis for facial hair removal, has noted some breast development to an eight cup on hormone therapy. She's not where she thought she would be, but understands that there may be no additional benefit to increasing hormone levels with respect to physical changes. She's happy where she's currently in her transition and just wants to maintain the changes. So subjective. The patient has had some changes. They're not substantial, but reasonable given her age. She's happy with her therapy, wanting to maintain her current state. Now, objective. Her estradiol level is low. It can use a bump in the dose. So what do you do? Since she's expressed she's happy with her current state and her transition and understands that higher dose may not provide any added benefit, even if the level went up, then there's no need to push the dose any further. In this case, the subjective assessment drives the plan. Now, your 20-year-old transgender female presents to your clinic with an estradiol level of 240. Testosterone is adequately suppressed. She's taken the same steps to feminize, is happy with the changes thus far, but would like to see if more hormone can increase breast size further. She insists because she's young, she should have higher levels of estradiol and is asking for a dose increase. And this happens often. So subjective, she's happy with her transition, interested in further breast growth. Then the objective, estradiol is 240, testosterone is suppressed. In this case, gender affirming hormone therapy would be objectively driven because the estradiol level is above 200 and super therapeutic. While we typically allow for younger patients to hover around 200, higher levels can mean increased risk of effect, adverse effects. So typically we don't want to exceed this number. These are just two straightforward examples. And as you can imagine, scenarios can become much, much more complex than this with the need for clinical insight and judgment. The bottom line is that subjective information is key when developing a therapeutic plan for, for a patient on gender-affirming therapy. Please don't dismiss it. Also, treating the numbers and lab values without subjective information is not a path to good care. They really go hand in hand, just like a marriage. Alex. Yeah, I was just I was just going to, you know, say one additional thing about what, what Rania mentioned that I completely echo. And I have some patients in my clinic that for example, a, a transgender male who once he started to see changes in his voice, he was happy at that point and didn't want to change anything else. And the comment we made is, if you're happy, I'm happy. We're not going to necessarily need to change anything. We are agreeing on a on a common goal. And I think that's one of the things that's different than like when we think about someone with, with diabetes, for example, is we're treating very objectively of, well, you're not a goal because we want to get you to an A1C of less than seven, for example, um, where we wouldn't necessarily say, oh, if the patient's okay with a glucose of 300, if you're happy, I'm happy. That's maybe not going to work in this situation. So I think this is- Why not? Why is right. glucose? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. So I think that's the important thing that that really um, changes some of the nuances of of gender affirming therapy. And I think Rania had some great examples to to bring that home. So I think you've kind of touched on this a little bit when you said it's it's really a marriage between subjective and objective. But what happens when you know the expectation of gender affirming therapy just doesn't meet reality? Right. You'd be surprised how often this happens. We can talk about expectations. We can talk about limitations and they still come back with these expectations that are just very grandiose. So at a patient who identified as a transgender woman, he used male pronouns throughout the entire time we knew him. He didn't shave his facial hair. He dressed in male attire 
all the time. He did this for years, all the years he was on estradiol therapy and undergoing his transition. At one point, I asked to review his transition goals with him since there wasn't a single time he ever expressed any interest in wearing female attire, shaving, or doing anything that resembled feminizing, which again is totally okay. You know, we always meet the patient where they're at in their transition and we just see how we can support them. But my intent was to reassess his goals and expectations. His response to me was this. My sisters are all big chested. They have D cup sized breasts and probably bigger. Until I can get to a D cup like my sister's, I won't even try to dress like a woman. This is when I sat back and had to have a tough conversation about expectations and reality. It's so easy for anyone to be disillusioned by what we see on TV, movies, social media, and even our own families. So it's not surprising that individuals undergoing gender transition have set the bar very high for themselves in terms of expectations. They are committed to transitioning and we'll, do, we'll go at great lengths to make it happen. With surgical intervention, they can reach many of their goals, but gender-affirming hormones can only do so much. There are limitations of therapy, and as we discussed, genetics, age, exposure to natal hormone, all these play a factor. When expectation doesn't meet reality, it's important to have a frank conversation with your patient about what changes are realistic, what they can truly expect, the time frame they should expect to see the changes, and again, review the limitations of hormone therapy. Where hormone therapy falls short, there may be other options to explore like electrolysis or laser hair removal for unwanted facial hair and surgical intervention for top and or bottom surgery. Finally, it's really important to revisit expectations and discuss these limitations regularly. As individuals may read, hear, see information online or from others in the community that may not always be real or true, and allow an open space for discussion where you can continue to be their safe and trusting place along their journey. That's really, really good. So our last question, we'll kind of hone it back into, you know, our pharmacy um, audience, but many of our listeners may have students, residents, or, you know, any other sort of trainee entering the clinical environment that identify as a sexual or gender minority. So how would you suggest that we interact with these trainees and maintain a non-assuming yet affirming relationship? Yeah, I think the key here is, like we said, really being without making any assumptions about any of our trainees. So it's quite possible that we're interacting with students and trainees that identify as being part of the LGBTQ community, yet discussing these things with them has historically been almost taboo. So I've started discussing this with my trainees in both a passive and private manner. So I give them an intake survey to discuss brief goals for the trainee, but then I also include a question asking, how would you like me to refer to you when discussing you with other colleagues? which includes various pronouns that have an option of saying, just use my name or even an open option where they can share exactly what they want me to know. I also introduce them, um, introduce myself to them with my pronouns and they see the same experience when I interact with my patients. Uh, this way, the trainee has an opportunity to disclose to me exactly as much as they want to without me coming off as an interrogator. I think Alex mentioned some excellent ways to interact with trainees um, to create that more positive learning environment um, for those who may be from a sexual gender minority group. And what I would add to that, as well as that many of the other things we've already talked about today, I think are really important. So the things we've talked about in creating affirming environments for patients 
is really crucial in creating a positive learning environment for trainees. And so what I mean by that is that how we treat our patients and the kind of environment we create in our clinical settings is one of the primary ways we can really demonstrate our commitment to affirming sexual and gender minorities to our trainees. So that's not enough, right? That alone, creating a positive environment for patients isn't enough. Those those really intentional steps that that Alex mentions um, are are key. They're a key component for creating that kind of positive environment for students or for trainees. But then I think trainees really need to see both, right? They need to have those intentional steps from their their teacher or their mentor, but then they also need to see us actually doing this um, in the clinical setting. I think those two things together are what really can create a positive learning environment for, for trainees who may be from sexual or a sexual or gender minority group. Well, this was a really, really, really good conversation today. I've learned so much from just listening to you all and um, hearing your expertise, but we have reached the end of our time together. And I do want to thank you, Drs. Alex Mills, Kyle Moline, and Rania Garcia for joining me today to discuss digging into DEI in pharmacy practice, improving care for sexual and gender minorities. I encourage all of our listeners to stay tuned to the ASHP podcast channel for more DEI-related episodes episodes. And be sure to check out all of our podcasts where we highlight everything from therapeutics to pharmacy leadership to the pharmacy student perspective. Thank you so much for listening in and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.